0: Learn more online at MediaMakingChange.org or in person at Citizen, our nonprofit coffee shop and program space located at 3636A North Mississippi Ave. We're open most days, 9 to 1. And be sure to check out our website for upcoming movie screenings and dinners with local media makers. I'm Rachel Miller Howard. On today's show, We connect with madeline kovacs of portland for everyone and allison markey young of a thousand friends of oregon
1: it is the nonprofit happy hour on x-ray fm this is phil bussey i'm joined in the studio by uh two members friends of a thousand friends of oregon um can i call you guys friends or staff
2: we call everybody friend everyone's (laughs) a
3: friend
1: Madeline Kovacs is the program coordinator for Portland for Everyone, which she will explain later what that means. And Allison Markey-Young, who is the marketing and communication director for Thousand Friends of Oregon. Let's start with a thousand friends of Oregon, because that could mean so many different things. Mm -hmm. What is Thousand Friends of Oregon doing?
3: The mission is to work with Oregonians to create a livable, vibrant state that has healthy, working lands and livable, connected communities and cities. The idea essentially of land use is that we have a purpose and a place for each type of land that we use and exist on. And some of that is working lands for farms, for ranching, for forestry, some of it's wild lands that need protection, and some of that's urban space where we need to talk about housing and transportation and how all of those intersect.
1: So how how did Thousand Friends of Oregon come about? It's been 40 years. Mm
3: -hmm. Thousand Friends came about right after Senate Bill 100 was passed. Senate Bill 100 is a landmark piece of legislation from uh, the legendary Governor Tom McCall that established Oregon's land use laws and systems. Most notably, people think of the urban growth boundary as the primary thing that you know of from land use laws. But there's a whole bunch of goals established, 19 of them, in fact, that deal with everything to do with... Uses of land. Following the establishment of that program, a young lawyer, Henry Richmond, who was working on that legislation at the time, realized that the laws were tenuous and that there were gonna be people who were fighting them. So he said, we need somebody in place to watch over them, to make sure that they work, to work with communities, to ensure that they're operating properly. And that's how Thousand Friends was formed. The name inspired by the idea that if you could get a thousand people who are engaged enough to each give a hundred dollars you've got a movement
1: and and so is Thousand Friends of Oregon is it playing more offense or more defense
3: I think that we always feel like there's a component that is defense and we have a legal team that is ready to protect those laws uh, that are pretty regularly under threat at the legislature there's always going to be a bill to try and dismantle some component of it and we have to be there to stop that but the other part of it is very proactive and Madeline is here to talk about a piece of that puzzle which is our housing we're late in the game when it comes to housing zoning to accommodate for sort of the modern sensibility of how we all live but we're here we're doing it and we're trying to get ahead of the game rather than fighting people after the fact.
1: Yeah, and I, I do want to talk about Portland for everyone, which is which is that um, program in a little bit. I I want to talk a little bit more about some of the history, because a lot has changed since Tom McCall and since the mid '70s. And Portland or Oregon at that time, the timber industry was in full swing. Uh, there was different pressures on the rural areas. Um, Portland was a sleepy and affordable town, <laughs> uh, and and just land was a different commodity and had different uses. How much has Thousand Friends? How much has that changed your programs?
3: Broadly, since the 70s, we've actually seen a very low trickle of removal of agricultural lands. Because of our land use system, Oregon is very unique. If you look at national studies, we have more more preserved agricultural lands than our neighboring states. Because of those land use laws, we also have things, for instance, like the wildlife urban interface, where you have housing in wildfire zones. We don't have that to the robust extent that, say, California is dealing with right now because we have land use laws. So what's changed is that the state's growing in a population, an economy, as well as impact on a national and international stage. And we need to recognize how to accommodate that and how to plan for that. And that's built into the land use system as well. And, and and
1: just to keep putting Thousand Friends in, into some context, there are other Thousand Friends around the country, or at least there's one in Wisconsin.
3: Mm-hmm. And is, one in Florida. There used to be one in Washington, which is now called Future Wise. Yeah, Thousand the, Friends of Oregon was the inception.
1: Okay, that's what I wanted to get on the record. So this is this is Oregon um, blazing the trail for this it idea. It is, yes, yes. It's for an organization to have that many initiatives, um, does it start to sprawl <laughs> the mission a bit?
2: I would say our mission doesn't sprawl. But it's uh, it's interesting because we staffed up and staffed down kind of depending on the needs of the moment. Um, and basically what'll be going on at any given time is you know they're all within our purview, right? But if the issues facing Oregonians are, ooh, I don't know, let's say housing, that will become a focus for a few years and then Either when we resolve those issues or if something else sort of comes to the fore that we need to be dealing with, um, something else will take precedent. Um, our, our deputy director recently spent a long time on the transportation package last, um, last mm-hmm. year. And climate change coming up will be a big thing that we're dealing with this year. Yep. So we do it all. We actually have chosen
3: to winnow down on a couple of focus areas because there are other organizations around the state. We're focused in on other components. So while Thousand Friends has sort of this bird's eye view of the entire system, we do know that, for instance, there's several goals relating to water and water health. And there are organizations that are incredibly well suited to doing just that. So we trust them to do that work, and we will ally with them when the need arises that a land use issue is um, at play when it comes to water health. But we're not going to manage stream health. And,
1: and and so, I mean, just to give a, a glimpse into the workings at Thousand Friends, is there a meeting once a year that you said, like, this is what's happening? How, how strategic is it on which initiatives to tackle?
2: It's natural and strategic, mm-hmm. right? So this comes up to some extent at every staff meeting every two weeks on a meta-level strategic planning process with our board of directors and everyone else really looking at our organization maybe once a year. Um, it's not like we go through a checklist, however, Um it's more paying attention to what people are saying, and it's more mm-hmm. looking at the legislature, what's coming out there, what's coming out of local governments. Um, we don't have to think too hard about what's bubbling up as a core issue.
3: Yeah, it, it, it becomes quite apparent. We also have advisory committees. and a robust system of allies and um, affiliate groups and they'll come to us and say these are the issues happening in our community right now and we as an organization can take a step back and go okay well this can be handled at a local level Mm -hmm. on like a one-to-one land use technical wonky legalese thing or we need legislation and then we talk about what that means so we have we have eyes and ears all, all over the state through various different groups that are partnered with us and uh, folks who are members.
1: Yeah, and, and one of those programs, I think, is the, the circuit rider?
3: A circuit rider attorney. The the origin of that word comes from judges who, in rural communities, would literally, on a horse, go from town to town and hold circuit, hold court, to be able to do manage just legal affairs in very, very small communities. So that's where the name Originates And yes, so our circuit rider attorney, she's based in Bend, but she travels across the state and works on a ton of different cases. I think last year, in in a single year, she uh, met with 50 different communities across the state to talk about their issues. And she is fairly visible on a couple of pretty big cases right now. One of them, which is a solar farm in southern Oregon. We're working on programs that will essentially say energy development can happen it should happen in these places because that's where the land is most appropriate for it so she is a circuit rider is working in southern oregon right now to to deal with cases where people are trying to put solar farms where high value farmland is
1: i i, I want to reflect on that a little bit because that that's a fascinating potential conflict i mean it seems mm-hmm. like solar power yes that's great but it seems like it could be at odds with some other goals
3: Yeah and that's the real challenge Uh, and I think that's where land use becomes incredibly helpful because we can talk about where to find those balances and to have that nuanced conversation about what's appropriate and where. And it's an evolving issue right now that we um, we're in the middle of. We don't have any answers. We want to work with solar developers and communities. We want to work with farmers to best understand how to integrate the various different goals of preserving our lands and you know when you when you cover them, even with a solar panel, you end up losing a carbon sink.
2: You also have transmission losses just with every other t- sort of energy source. So the most efficient thing we could possibly do would be to put small scale solar farms in relatively urban or urbanized rural areas. Madeline
1: Kovacs is the program coordinator for Portland for Everyone with Thousand Friends of Oregon and Allison Marquis Young is the marketing and communications director. We're going to take a quick song break. We're going to pull a song from the musical Rent How we gonna pay? That was from the musical Rent, and we are talking with Allison Markey Young, who is the Marketing Communications Director for Thousand Friends of Oregon, and Madeline Kovacs, who is the Program Coordinator for Portland for Everyone. Portland's getting expensive, and Thousand you Friends-
2: noticed,
1: <laughs> uh, and Thousand Friends of Oregon is concerned.
2: Yes. We're very concerned.
1: Um, when did when did you guys become concerned?
2: Portland for everyone was founded um, as a coalition about a year and a half ago. And the reason was that um, so we'll get we'll get wonky into the land use for a second, then we'll bring it back to housing because it all it all comes together. But um, so goal ten of this the statewide land use planning program is housing. And that is one of the goals that influences, so every 20 years, because of our statewide land use planning program in part, cities must update their comprehensive land use plan, which means they have to show, hey, we have our spaces planned and zoned for all of the increases in population, infrastructure, and everything else that we're going to need to accommodate the growth that all of these metro and statewide projections are telling us that we're going to have. Here's the catch. Not only does Goal 10 say you must, you know, do housing, Goal 10 says that you must be making housing land use land use laws produce the kinds of housing that will be made available to house all of your residents at prices that they can afford with their incomes so that's the way that oregon is failing its residents right now is on that type of housing that's going to actually meet and accommodate people's needs so essentially portland for everyone is uh, a group a coalition that is looking at okay when the city of portland is making this comprehensive plan update and doing all of these implementation projects which change the rules and evolve the rules for our zoning for what we land to be built in Portland over the next 25 years, Um, we need to make sure that those land use decisions will produce more affordable options, not the opposite.
1: Livability Mm -hmm. is obviously a core debate in Portland Mm -hmm. and what the definition of livability is.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, There are a few answers to that, and none of them are straightforward, because we all have our own version of what that means. right? I I would start out by asking livability for who, because I think um, part of of what's happening in the public dialogue right now is a lot of people who um, haven't had to um, welcome new residents or make any sacrifices or see things change. You know, Portland had a long period where we were really in a recession and and a relative lull compared to a lot of the rest of the country. We we were um, basically doing the opposite of building for decades. And I think longtime residents got really used to that. And there's nothing wrong with that. It just is. And so I think people are looking around now going, oh, my goodness, things are changing so quickly. Um, I was not expecting this and it's just happening. Portland is turning into a metropolis. We are growing. Part of what I do too is try to coordinate with people in Seattle and the Bay Area to get them to build more housing to change some of their roles so more of their residents stay there too, right? This is not just a Portland problem. This is a West Coast problem. This is a national problem. We have a national housing crisis right now. I think another thing that comes up a lot is the parking question. What I hear is that oh you know this would be okay if we were you know Paris France or if we were this European city where the transit was so good and cities were and it was already walkable and and a, new arrivals would actually give up their car. Well, we have this problem in the United States in a lot of places where we were never originally planned for a I t- call it density with a lowercase d which like duplexes will get you to a density that allows a frequent transit line. Single family zoning you know only gets you about seven to eight units per acre. We need about 15 to 16 units per acre to run a frequent transit line. Because the United States was planned in a land use pattern in the 1940s and on basically, we subsidized the suburbs. And there's going to be an awkward period where to get to the place where we have amenities and services in the place where people will give up their cars, there's a rub there. I do believe, though, as a millennial and someone who's fought um, climate change battles at the U.N. and other places for a long time, it's a transition we need to undergo.
1: How long are we going to have to wait?
2: (laughs) That's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm serious. And I think... uh, if you want to wait less long, we should re-legalize two accessory dwelling units, which gets you to three units per lot in a very unobtrusive way. We should be re-legalizing duplexes in little courtyard apartments and doing what I call gentle infill.
1: And when you say we, mm-hmm. uh, is that Portland. Po- Portland City Council?
2: Ultimately, yes.
1: Which would not seem like it's as st- stubborn to that idea. What are the barriers to making it happen?
2: I think fear of change. I mm-hmm. think I think just um, I think there's also been a lot of misinformation out there because the cause and effect is really complicated. Um, and people look around and they see all these demolitions happening and what we affectionately call McMansions going up, and they think, "Oh my goodness, the residential infill project and whatever these planners are doing is going to bring more of this." And it's it's hard because the a- actual answer to that is no. The project is actually supposed to address a lot of these concerns in addition to welcoming more smaller housing types. Um, And what's happening now is under current rules, and these are again the current zoning rules that have largely been in place since the 50s and the 70s, in a residential area right now on a 5,000 square foot lot, you can build one single family house up to 6,700 square feet big. So if that's all that you're allowed to build and you're not allowed to build a duplex or a triplex, or there aren't good incentives for adaptive reuse, or there aren't good incentives for upkeep, right? That's what you're going to get more of, period, the end. So basically what we're advocating for is to incentivize and prioritize basically every option other than a one-for-one demolition rebuild where a um, bungalow goes out and a really expensive, huge new house comes in.
1: I, I'm curious, Madeline, about sort of like what your work week looks like. Like Who do you go talk to about this? How does one gain traction for an idea to become reality?
2: Hmm so portland for everyone does that in a number of different ways um, one is by growing the coalition and we grew very very quickly and we are made up of bike bike ped transit advocates affordable housing folks um, some neighborhoods actually and uh, community-based organizations by and large and um, we have found that to be um, where a lot of our strength comes from because that's an incredible pool of expertise across the board and people dealing with different parts of the housing crisis from their own expert perspective. What I spend most of my time doing day in and day out, those community meetings, whether it's at a neighborhood association, a community-based organization, or whether we're just hosting um, more of a happy hour or a house party, 90% of my job is public education and engagement, and it has to be a two-way conversation.
1: Yeah, what, what are you hearing? What, what are some of the themes that have emerged over the last year, and are those themes changing um, as time goes on?
2: There's been a couple major theme changes. One is, um, about a year ago, there was an attempt during the last legislative session, the landlord lobby essentially tried to do this campaign where they were trying to pit renters' rights activists against people advocating for more and more diverse housing. And they failed. And they failed because tenants' rights activists get it. I have learned that There's a lot things that appear to be at odds are, in fact, not if we want to protect renters and increase renters rights and put an end to no cause evictions and build more of the kinds of housing that people need, not the kinds of housing that they don't. We can do that. Right. These things are not are not antithetical at all. So I think that's been part of something in my evolution, you know, has been um, to make sure that we are promoting more holistic solutions, right? Because you can build more housing into the future, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything for someone standing there with an eviction notice in their hand, right? Housing solutions are a spectrum from renters' rights to um, affordable housing programs to land use to public subsidies, right? Like the changes in our national tax code are going to affect people's ability to build more affordable housing. So it's complicated. And I think the way that my thinking has evolved is to make sure that you know i'm going to advocate for my piece of the puzzle but that doesn't close me off from understanding the continuum of housing needs
1: is there a city that's doing it right
2: not really <laughs> no there there are actually a lot of cities that's wrong. There are a lot of <laughs> cities that are doing a lot of things much better. There was a great article that was put out by Rachel Monahan of the Willamette Week that talked about six ways other cities are smarter than Portland on housing, which I thought was a very good basic overview. And then a piece by Alan Durning kind of does a similar profile looking at Tokyo, looking at Montreal. And so I think the the take home from that for me was... There are lots of ways to be better at housing, and zoning for the right kinds of housing is one piece of the puzzle. Increasing public funding is another piece of the puzzle. Basically not putting additional barriers to seeing new housing, right? There are a lot of times where there's a pretty good project that dies by a thousand paper cuts because of... Over regulation in a bad way. Clearly, I work for a thousand friends of Oregon. I'm okay with regulation. But the type of regulation, whether that regulation is going to lead you to a public policy that gets more toward an end product that you want is something that we're doing pretty badly in Portland right now.
1: So so Madeline, you mentioned one thing uh, when you were talking about missing middle housing. Um, I don't know what that is.
2: Missing middle housing um, is so coined because it's kind of missing in America's zoning codes today and how we've zoned our cities. Missing middle housing is everything in between a large house on one large lot and a four over one or higher kind of mid-rise apartment building. So um, American cities, Portland is no exception, have by and large zoned out duplexes, triplexes, courtyard apartments, um, backyard cottages, things like that. And those are the very kinds of housing types that we can use to bring back livability for seniors, for young couples starting out, Um, and that's what Portland's trying to do right now through our residential infill project.
1: And it seems to be more and more prevalent. I mean, that is that is some of the backbone right now of the sort of emerging rental market and also the Airbnb market. And I you can't see it on the radio, but that Airbnb market got an eye roll.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough because – so I'll, I'll tell you a, a couple of things that Madeline Kovacs thinks about Airbnb. How's that? Airbnb – isn't as a tricky issue and my first answer which is always unsatisfying to people but is true is that that's not being addressed through zoning right land use law deals with um for the most part what can you build on this site and what are the parameters around that now the reason people build things right varies and i um i have never been a fan of the scale to which airbnb is um you know coming into portland um, partially at the detriment of long-term rental units which we need a lot more of That said, my understanding of that has expanded a lot, Um, especially I volunteered on the ADU Build Small Live Large tour and got to talk to a lot of people who were building ADUs. And um, there were multiple homeowners on that tour who were like, yeah, you know. Financing an ADU um, is no small thing to do. And, you know, $200,000 is a lot of money for most homeowners in Portland, right? So this is not a huge developer producing a housing unit. This is a homeowner producing a housing unit. And I talked to a lot of people who are like, yeah, I I would love to make this a long-term rental, or I might even, I want to retire into it. In the short term, I need to do a short-term rental to recoup X percent of my costs, and then that's exactly what I'm going to do. So that issue has been complicated for me, and I'm wrestling with it, but I think that in my mind, the bottom line is we need to still support land use rules that re-legalize more flexible, small-scale housing options.
3: I don't think it's fair for us to say what one can or cannot do legally with their property, and therefore zone a bunch of rules around it, because bottom line is, even if we kept the zoning the same, Airbnbs would still exist. People would rent out rooms.
1: I mean, it is, it's is—it's a fascinating question. I mean, for, for land use, for livability, for housing. Um, and I think it's a fascinating question throughout Oregon. Ashland is dealing with it much differently than Bend is dealing with it and differently than Portland's dealing with it. Is that a conversation that Thousand Friends of Oregon jumps into is how to resolve what is clearly, I mean, an, a national question of how to deal with use or is that like you've been saying somewhat out of your parameter
2: i think it's i think it's just outside the scope of something that we would take on
3: mm-hmm. we don't tell farmers how to farm we don't tell ranchers how to ranch and we don't tell homeowners how to home so we don't really work in that sphere of, of regulation
1: i want to go back to some of the, the original premises of who and what thousand friends of oregon is it's it's hard not to think about Eastern Oregon, where there's one person for every two acres?
3: That's a really good question, and I think that that's something that we're addressing Thousand Friends as an organization, and that's where the legislature comes in, because every community is slightly unique. Eastern Oregon has an economic challenge on their hands, and that's something that we all need to recognize and honor and respect. Housing isn't going to be the talking point that they're wanting to address in the same way. They do want to develop, but they want to do economic development work. And so we need to have conversations and work through strategies with Eastern Oregon communities on what kind of zoning is appropriate to spur growth. And you need a lot of land to properly ranch um, in a sustainable, conservation-minded way. Land use does that, and I think that you know housing is a, a conversation piece, uh, but I think the zoning is, is very different. There
2: are also similarities. A lot of U.S. cities, you know, took basically the same model code from the federal government and applied it. So cities talk to each other. A lot of the lot per lot zoning rules actually tend to be very similar. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that we've been doing outside of Portland that I've been involved with a little bit, one of our major partners in education and outreach is actually AARP. We are going to have a lot of boomers who are going to be downsizing into retirement. Um, There are also a lot of older adults who need to be able to finance their retirement. And there's actually a pilot program happening at um, PCC right now that's pairing older adults with, um, you know, unrestricted incomes with a student who's in need of housing because students are sleeping in their cars right now. And so we've been working with AARP to sort of look at how our land use rules Um, and development codes frankly aren't serving an aging population that's going to be hitting us very 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 quickly and we've done some of those educational events in medford and bend and in each city those will have slightly different code adjustment outcomes or just public conversations or there will be a a, you know a different policy platform that comes forward to help fill that gap but i think that the um, a lot of the needs that communities are struggling with across the state um, they're different but there's a lot of overlap. And so the more that we're able to um, look for synergies and lessons learned and sort of not recreate any wheels and do some solution sharing, I think the better off we're all going to be.
1: Madeline Kovacs is the program coordinator for Portland for Everyone, and Allison Marquis-Young is the marketing communication director for Thousand Friends of Oregon. How does one get involved if one has an opinion on land use or one (laughs) wants to support? land use maybe more of the latter and less of the former
3: goal one of oregon's land use planning system is citizen involvement get involved get involved go to go to meetings talk to your city council attend a legislative session or or submit testimony because oregon is shaped by oregonians that's important how to get involved with Thousand Friends, oh gosh, go to uh, www.friends.org, and you can get all sorts of information there.
1: Thank you both for coming in, and we are going to go out on Home on the Range.
3: Thank you.
0: Home, home on the range. Special thanks to our sponsors. BusinessWorks, specializing in small business accounting needs of all sort, from payroll to -to day-to-day bookkeeping and beyond. a Vineyard and Winery, crafting elegant, sensuous, and age-worthy wines for those who view the pairing of wine and food essential to their lifestyle and well-being. Stormbreaker Brewing, a welcoming and comfortable destination for enjoying delicious beers, tasty food, and friendly company. And Porque no Taqueria, celebrating the flavor and essence of Mexico. If your organization or business is interested in underwriting our show, please email phil at MediaMakingChange.org. The Nonprofit Happy Hour is a production of the Media Institute for Social Change and KXRY Radio, X Ray FM. Our host is Phil Bussey. Our producer and editor is Rachel Miller Howard. Archives of past shows can be found on our SoundCloud page. Questions, comments, or ideas about the show can be sent to info at mediamakingchange.org. Thanks for tuning in.